Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined as always by Bill Galston of Brookings, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We will be hearing from all of them in due course, but I'd like to begin with our special guest this week. It is Stephen Tellis, professor of John, uh, at Johns Hopkins University and co-author of a new book, Never Trump, The Revolt of the Conservative Elites. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks for uh, being here. And I should also mention that, like Linda, I'm also a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, as well as my gig at Johns Hopkins. Right. Excellent. Um, so um, I enjoyed your book very much. Um, it was, uh, I thought, very insightful. Um, but um, t- tell us why you wanted to write a book about a group that has been declared uh, utterly trivial and unimportant in the scheme of things. Well, again, one of the ironies of that is um, for a group that is um, so often described as being irrelevant, people spend a lot of time talking about them, um, which is a interesting and paradoxical fact. And we started my co-author, Rob Saldine of the University of Montana, Uh, We started working on this book in uh, the beginning of 2017 in the aftermath of the election. And one of the reasons we were interested in this is from the point of view of political parties, that this is a group um, that had opposed the nominee of their own party. And especially under conditions of hyperpolarization, that's really unusual. And in fact, in the context of American history, having a group this large uh, oppose their own nominee is really quite unprecedented, even um, when you compare it to 1972 in the Democratic Party or 1964 in the Republicans. The sheer scope of, um, of opposition to Trump within the Republican Party, at least during the election, was really quite large. And in the book, we distinguish between two groups, one that we don't really talk about and one that we do. The one we don't really talk a lot about is elected officials because they were, to use a quote from the book, they were, um, uh, you know, they were sunshine patriots, right? They had uh, opposed, a lot of them had very vociferously opposed Trump during the campaign, but pretty quickly ended up changing their spots afterward. But the group that we found really interested in was what we call people from the extended party network, people who are public intellectuals, foreign policy experts, economists, lawyers, political professionals. These are all the kind of people that every modern party needs, both to uh, govern, to get elected. um, And that's really where the most intense opposition to Trump was. And so we thought the stories of these, um, these actors would be interesting, especially in the context of this larger phenomenon of political polarization that both Rob and I have been interested in. Did you find any unifying theme among all of these different groups, or did different groups of never-Trumpers have different rationales and, uh, and motives? Yeah, so one of the themes, so the book is organized around these different professional groups in the Republican Party, foreign policy experts, political professionals, public intellectuals, lawyers, and economists. And we did think that those professional identities mattered a lot. 
certainly for the foreign policy uh, establishment of the Republican Party, there was a really significant consequence of the fact that these were people who really constituted an actual kind of social group. They were known to each other. Lots of them had served together um, in the administration. They uh, continued to be in interaction. These are people who who are friends. One thing that we observed is there was a kind of unit cohesion among these foreign policy experts in that they actually tried to exercise leverage and influence on each other to try to get them to stick together as a group. And so these weren't just sort of isolated individuals who were all making decisions on the basis of idiosyncratic personal factors. That's a little different in some of these other groups like public intellectuals, which is where I put uh, you, Mona, when I interviewed you. Um, that's a less of a, um, a real sort of social grouping that exercises influence and also public intellectuals in general. Part of their brand is typically independence. Uh, so independence. Pardon? <laughs> I said cussed independence. Yeah, cussed independence. But again, that's part of the brand, right? Um, right. In general, public intellectuals like to be able to say that they're not just acting on the, they're not just party operatives, they're not just party hacks. And I think in general, that's where you saw a lot of this, um, the tension that made the public intellectual so interesting. And that's where idiosyncratic individual factors mattered a lot. Religion is one thing we talk about significantly in the book. And that's a lot of what we talked um, to you uh, about. And, you know, one thing I've been, again, about a lot of the public intellectuals, and I had a long conversation with Jonah Goldberg for the the book. Um, these are people who really couldn't imagine themselves being uh, out of the, you know, out of the group, right? They, you know, especially people like Jonah were literally born into the conservative movement. Mm-hmm. And so the experience of suddenly seeing people they always imagined themselves being in the foxhole with suddenly um, doing and seeing the entire world differently than they did was a really transformative and in many cases for people really um, heartbreaking experience. Right. right. Um, of the people that you interviewed for this book uh, are did, have any of them changed their views since the since the interviews? Have any of them become less anti-Trump? Uh, so I'm trying to think about that. I mean, again, in some ways, the most interesting group here were the uh, Reformicons, and we have a long discussion of them because they really were already in conflict to some degree with the rest of the Republican Party about what the um, Republican Party's fundamental political philosophy should be. And they were people who were trying to convince the Republican Party in some ways to go in some of the same directions that Trump, at least rhetorically, was saying he wanted to go. And so, you know, those are people like Yuval Levin and uh, Raihan Salam Ramesh and Ramesh Panuru. All of, uh, all of them had always had this very different relationship than as opposed to people who are really completely comfortable with what the Republican Party's dominant positions were on economics and social policy. And I don't think a lot of those groups have gone, have gone over completely to, um, uh, to Trumpism, but they've always had to play this very delicate dance by saying, <clears throat> we really hate Trump, but 
you know, this revised position on economic policy, on regulation, on redistribution, all the, those things um, that uh, to some degree Trump on and off, right, starts signaling that he wants to, um, to create a new position on. Um, that's fine. It's Trump that's the problem. And maintaining that balance, I think, for them has always been very delicate. And that's why many of those are the people who are most distant and most hesitant to actually embrace the never Trump brand. You know, some of the categories, of course, slosh over into one another. Like when I was reading the section on the foreign policy people who remained vehemently anti-Trump, I mean, a lot of those sentiments were also what motivated me, I have to say. I mean, what, the, the fact, and you go through this, you know, that they were so offended by the fact that he was sidling up to dictators, that he was praising the communist Chinese for their crackdown on Tiananmen Square, uh, that he seemed to have no understanding of the American idea or of American exceptionalism or of our values. Um, those are things that were just deal breakers um, for for me early on. The fact that he would that he would disdain uh, an American hero like John McCain exactly for his heroism. <laughs> um, so the categories do mesh together in 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 many people. I would imagine a lot of the same things offended us, um, but. Um, but it's interesting that you say that this is a phenomenon that's unique. I mean, so, so there is no analog, is there, on the um, on the left for for a, a group that has sort of you know uh, ever decamped, or is there? Well, I mean, obviously, there's 1972, uh, where there was a big group of um, Democrats for Nixon. That was an actual thing, right? To some degree, part, significant parts of the labor movement were at least highly um, uh, suspicious of, uh, of McGovern. And, you know, and some of that ended up feeding long term into the neocon movement, right? Lots of the people who yeah. were, uh, were anti-McGovern also then eventually become um, become Republicans, people who are associated with Social Democrats USA and that kind of group. Uh, but that was a really much smaller group than right. here, right? And you now part of that is also that the conservative counter-establishment, right? That whole network of, again, what we call the extended party is just a much bigger group now than it was in 1972 and certainly much bigger than it was in 1964. Um, you know, the political party is not just elected officials. It's all these people who are professional service providers for the the party. And that's a bigger group. And that's and that was a big part of the opposition to uh, to Trump. And those are definitely the people who are much more likely to stick with their anti-Trumpism as opposed to elected uh, elected officials. Just to go back to one of the points that you made before, I do think that one of the things that so repulsed a lot of, um, of people who became never Trumpers is they had a very particular idea of the nature of the country. Um, and, and again, I think it's not an accident that a lot of them were Jews, um, that there's a particular way you have to understand America to understand it as being a home for Jewish Americans, right? You have to imagine America not as being ethnically um, or racially identified, but as, um, as civically identified. Mm -hmm. And it was Trump's sort of direct 
um, uh, attack on that idea that I think especially among Jewish conservatives who play such an important role among neoconservatives that really um, triggered something uh, among among that particular group. And that's why, again, you see lots of, um, of uh, Jewish neocons who particularly emphasize the importance of American exceptionalism because American exceptionalism provides a kind of idea of the nation in which they can imagine a part. And the other part of this is, and again, this certainly came up in the interview with Jonah Goldberg, the degree to which a lot of these conservatives had already been fighting with the alt-right, had already been fighting with people who wanted a different conservative idea of the nation, um, who also wanted different sort of power relationships inside the conservative movement. And so they reacted to Trump much more sharply because they saw this as just a continuation of the battle they, they already had been fighting against um, uh, against those parts of the of, of the alt right, like Breitbart and all the rest of that. And before that, with the Buchanan faction, um, which which was a precursor. Yeah. So this is yeah. So the, again, that's why you know some people see this in much more extreme kind of terms. And that's one of the things that I tried to get at in the book. One is that the Trump experience really was unprecedented. Um, it really was a thing that people didn't have clear anchors for how to think about what would be rational action. It was so far off of the, um, the standard set, right? Mm-hmm. And that meant that people had to revert to lots of analogies to think about what this thing was going to be like. And one of those, again, referring to Buchanan is interesting. A lot of the people we talked to referred to this particular kind of conservatism as sort of like the monster in the basement, um, that they knew they were sharing a party with lots of people who in some ways didn't quite accept their their vision of conservatism, but they had a kind of hierarchical relationship in the conserv- in the conservative movement in the Republican Party, where that particular Buchananite kind of orientation was clearly subordinate. And sometimes you'd bring it out in election time, but it was always understood that they were not really in charge. And that's what really came out in 2016 is this sense that that long-term effort to keep the monster in the basement finally had broken down. Uh, and now somehow the monster in the basement was in, was in charge. Um, and I think that's a thing where, again, lots of people were processing this through their previous experience. Um, and I think that plays a lot into how people respond the way they did. Mm, interesting. I personally did not have that feeling, but that may have been a lack of insight on my part about the the uh, chords that were resonating with certain parts of the Republican Party base. Um, but I really believed that, that that kind of thinking was a fringe phenomenon. I didn't think it had such widespread appeal. But in any event, I have learned otherwise. And uh, we all have, thanks to your book, a lot more insight into the phenomenon of Never Trump. Um, I urge people to read it. I know it's been kind of a, a difficult time to do anything and particularly you know, for you to publish a book, right? I mean, it's not out in hardcover yet, um, but people can get it on Kindle, right? They can get it on Kindle and hopefully they'll be opening up the warehouse in North Carolina that ships the uh, the cloth bound books. Um, but in some ways, right, right? I mean, everybody's trying to figure out how to do their job differently than they did it before. 
And the one thing is people are sitting at home listening to a lot more podcasts than they were before. So in some ways, maybe it's not the worst time to drop a book. <laughs> well, that's that's good. Looking on the bright side. Anyway, we really appreciate uh, the work you put into this and uh, the insight. And uh, you're joining us today. So thanks so much. Thank you very much, Mona. Okay. Take care, Steve. Well, welcome back. We are now in the what week is it of this uh of this shutdown of this lockdown i'm losing track um but i always look forward to chatting with you all um so uh good to be together at least virtually um one of the things that happened this week um is that the president by a tweet announced a new immigration pause. He's stopping all immigration to the country, legal uh, as well as illegal. Uh, of course, illegal was never permitted, but, and you guys have been writing about this uh, this week. So um, Linda, let me start with you. Um, do, what do you make of this order? Is it a, Is he using the coronavirus as a pretext to do something he just always wanted to do anyway? Well, of course he's doing that. I mean, he has wanted to have U.S. immigration uh, since his election and have H-A-L-V-E. Yeah, right. Uh, And uh, he, you know, he's uh, not been successful uh, in getting that done, although he has, in fact, uh, disrupted legal immigration. He basically set off the refugee resettlement program this year. Uh, he's used the pandemic um, to stop all asylees from uh, seeking asylum in the United States. They're repatriating all people who are in, uh, intercepted at the border. And look, there are good reasons not to want uh, thousands of people flooding into the country in an uncontrolled fashion. Uh, and understanding that uh, is important and supporting that is important. But what he's doing here is something very different. And one of the things that it points to is that if we had a more robust testing system, we could use the old Ellis Island approach, which is to make sure that people who come in are in fact healthy. Uh, We could be testing people um, who are coming into the United States. But that's not what this is really about. This is all about pumping up his base. Uh, He knows that he has not been able to uh, do much uh, for his base recently. He can't even get out there and and throw rallies and get them all riled up. So this is one way of throwing a little red meat. Uh, And what it is going to accomplish is that it is going to cut off new immigrants who are overseas from coming into the United States, except for some categories. Uh, for example, about a third of all doctors in the United States uh, now are uh, are immigrants. And so he's not cutting off access to doctors or nurses uh, who have immigrant visas and want to immigrate to the United States. He has uh, created an exception for agricultural workers because I think everybody knows that Americans are not going to go out there and and be picking lettuce and and strawberries and other things under 95 degree uh, sun. So uh, this is really a kind of mixed message, but it's really more about politics than it is about anything else. So, uh, Damon, the... um the polling on this has changed dramatically, which is not surprising. That's true all over the world. Um, when there's a health crisis or pandemic, 
people tend to want to pull up the drawbridge. And um, uh, whereas you know, we had large majorities in this country favoring um, immigration and believing that it was a benefit to the country um, just a few months ago, now, according to a USA Today Ipsos poll, 79% uh, approve of limiting immigration completely or cutting it off. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I wrote a column about a month ago, uh, or I guess by now, as you said, uh, time is sort of slipping away as we <laughs> lose track of the week. So it was probably more like six weeks ago, right at the start of uh, the uh, shelter in place orders about how the whole the whole uh, epidemiological crisis was likely to give a boost to nationalists. And I do think that there is evidence that this is happening around the world. And, and I think Trump's move on immigration this week was uh, an effort to both ride that wave and to further it, which is, of course, something you would expect Trump to do, given his long-term attachment to kind of xenophobic policies. Um, but it's also other uh, other things are, are motivating him. It's a way of, as you indicated at the top of the segment, that's taking decisive action during a crisis, a version of Rahm Emanuel's line about never letting a good crisis go to waste. Well, for Trump, of course, he's going to take an opportunity to do this decisive thing that he's always wanted to do. It also allows him to perform crucial base maintenance for himself, as he's always doing with his tweets. Um, but of course, the most crucial part of his voting uh, segment are people who loved him from the beginning for his anti-immigrant stance, who want desperately the wall to be built. And so he gets to now play to them and hopefully ensure that they'll show up uh, in 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 uh, well, like 110% uh, enthusiasm on election day. It also allows him to force the Democrats and, and Joe Biden in particular to stake out a position on immigration where I think, I don't know if Linda and I maybe are a little bit uh, in disagreement about this, but I do think the Democrats have been kind of moving left on immigration toward a more uh, kind of increasingly liberal or open position. Uh, on immigrants. And uh, it's not entirely clear from the polling uh, that that is a good thing. Uh, I think in general, in good times, people in this country are quite open to, uh, to an open immigration policy, but not infinitely. And certainly in a crisis, they're going to be inclined to say, well, wait a minute, let's maybe uh, pull back a little bit and put the country and its interests uh, ahead of the so-called outsiders. And then finally, it allows Trump, of course, to have enemies, to do battle with uh, journalists who will accuse him of being a racist. And then he gets to pretend, pretend he's on the side of the American people against the globalists. And of course, any judges at the federal level who uh, issue injunctions and stays about it, uh, he can uh, do the same thing with them. So basically on all these fronts, he has every reason to think that this will benefit him politically, whether it really does in the end, we will see. Bill, um, during the 2018 election cycle, uh, we all remember another of the greatest hits was the caravans that were headed for our border. Um, and uh, so this is this is a perennial uh, uh, for Trump and uh, it, it works for a certain kind of audience. But um, 
but let, let's pursue Damon's point um, about the Democrats. Uh, I, I agree that the Democratic Party, at least if you were judging by the Democratic debates this year, last year, um, did seem to be take, staking out a really kind of radical position, which was that that it should not even be illegal to try to cross the border and that uh, everybody should be free to come. And not only that, we should give them, you know, government subsidized health care and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, um, so how do you think uh, the, the Democratic Party and not and not the party so much, but specifically the nominee, which is Joe Biden, how do you think he should handle it, is going to handle it? Uh, Biden's nomination uh, indicated a rejection of some of the most extreme elements in the party. Uh, Biden's challenge is to keep his balance under pressure. Uh, I think he's done a pretty good job so far, and uh, he's going to have to continue to. Uh, there is a there is a position, an honorable position, that is neither Trump's position nor AOC's position. And his job is to locate that honorable position uh, and, and stick with it. I think that's what he'll do because anything else would be a big negative in the fall and would also contradict what I think he really believes about the subject. So the well, part- do you want to spell it out? What, what, what is that sweet spot? Well, uh, the sweet spot in the long term is the kind of balance that sensible immigration reform has been striking now for 15 years. Uh, and I, despite what people are saying now, I think that as this crisis eases, people will tend to revert to that. This is clearly not the time to be talking about immigration reform. Uh, this is, you know, this is the time for not making mistakes on immigration uh, by swerving to an extreme position that the people will instinctively reject. Uh, and I think Biden is going to do fine on that front. Uh, and then the farther future is going to have to take care of itself. But uh, I am, but to repeat, I'm, I'm convinced that there is a sweet spot and polling up until this crisis consistently showed that the American people were by and large located on that spot. Mona, could, could I just jump in here? Because I think one what? of the things that people miss um, on the immigration uh, issue is that immigration is very much market driven. Immigrants do not come to the United States legally or illegally when there are not jobs. Right now, we've got 24 million or so Americans uh, unemployed. And given that fact, you're not going to see a whole lot of people uh, wanting to come uh, to get uh, in line for jobs that don't exist. And that's been true forever. Uh, during the Great Depression, when we also had a lot of uh, anti-immigrant moves, and particularly against Mexicans, uh, who were one of the few groups that uh, could uh, migrate after the changes in the immigration law, um, 
it, they quit coming. Mexicans quit coming to the United States. They voluntarily repatriated back to Mexico. There were also some very ugly moves to try to force them back into Mexico. And some Mexican uh, Americans were actually driven out of the United States uh, at that time. But the idea that, you know, there's going to be this huge clamor of people trying to get into the United States uh, in the near future, I think is just wrong. So I think there is a sweet spot and I don't disagree with either Damon or Bill, but I will say one thing about the whole question about the Democrats and their decriminalizing uh, illegal immigration. I think if they had presented this accurately and had said what we're looking to do is to make illegal border crossing is no longer a felony, which was a new provision um, that uh, was uh, put into the law and that it went back to being a civil infraction. Uh, I think, you know, nobody is suggesting that it should not be illegal to come into the United States without proper documentation. Uh, The question is whether or not it's going to be treated as a felony or as a civil infraction. Um. Is this an area where the president has too much power or the right amount? Um, the, uh, you know, the Congress makes the, the immigration laws, um, but in the, in the um, Immigration and Nationality Act, there's a provision that says, whenever the president finds that the entry of any aliens or of any class of aliens into the United States would be detrimental to the interests of the United States, He may, by proclamation, and for such period as he shall deem necessary, suspend the entry of all aliens or any class of aliens as immigrants or non-immigrants. That is the provision that the Supreme Court said gave him the authority to do his what was almost universally called a Muslim ban. It wasn't exactly, but it was uh, uh, restricting immigration from certain countries, mostly majority Muslim. but um, does the president have too much authority? Yes. Okay. Uh, this is Bill, and I, you know, and but this is just one example of how the Congress of the United States has unwisely surrendered a lot of its power to the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are more than one hundred and twenty-five pieces of legislation that grant different kinds of emergency authority to the president. Uh, And we have, I think we've clearly reached a point when this crisis has passed and we can focus on the long term again, that we need to think about a rebalancing of power between Congress and the executive branch in the name of our constitutional order. This Mm -hmm. is dangerous. Uh, Mm -hmm. And a a friend of mine commented early in this administration that that Trump is malevolent malevolence mitigated by incompetence right and what scares me is that the next time around in the next crisis uh, we could have in the White House someone like Victor Orban who's mm-hmm. proved to be very competent in using executive powers in order to expand his own power, and he now has the power to rule by decree, which is roughly the power that Adolf Hitler was granted early in 1933, and we know how that worked out. So this is this is a game for very high stakes. Yeah, you know the um, the president has the soul of a of a tyrant, but he has the self discipline of a three year old, 
And so he winds up flailing around. He doesn't really use the power that he's constantly asserting that he has, or, or he rarely does, um, and certainly not very effectively. So we can be grateful for that. Um, but, um, but Damon, you made a point, which I invite you to say again, um, you made a point in your column, which is that, um, you know, people who say, well, you know, Trump is incompetent and he and he's he's not a dictator. Look, he can bear, you know, he he he's not taking he's not even using the powers that the emergency powers that that he's entitled to use. So people are just becoming hysterical. But his rhetoric, his assertions, I can do anything I want, I have total authority, all these kinds of things chip away at our um our ethics and our our civic idea of what the proper role of the president is and what his proper powers are, and as Bill was saying, and you've said in your columns, and you know that it it, it um, erodes our, the proper sense of modesty about the use of power, and the next guy may not be so incompetent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I did write a column titled, uh, Is Trump Dangerously Strong or Perilously Weak? Because this is a recurring question, and it's it's a sign of how disorienting the political scene has been for the last three years, that there really isn't even a consensus about that question and the answer to it. Like, the commentary kind of flip-flops between some people who who continually kind of say he's a he's a would be dictator he maybe is a dictator or at least will be about a week from now and then others who point to the fact that he actually hasn't done all that much he seems to be incompetent he's kind of temperamentally incapable of ever following through on anything that seems that dangerous so he's actually there's actually the problem is we have a vacuum of power coming from the top and you can see that in all kinds of ways through the pandemic where the governors have been taking the lead and despite Trump talking endlessly in his press avails every evening, it's not clear exactly what the federal government is doing, at least on the executive side. In Congress, they have passed this massive massive aid package of $2 trillion and now another one this week of about half half a trillion. So Congress is doing some things. Uh, but the executive seems to be flailing about. But the fact is, as I point out in the column, presidents have two broad powers. One is to do things, which is what I've just been talking about and we've been talking about. But then they also say things. And in saying things, they shape public opinion. And the fact is, you know, what percentage of Republicans is it who actually love Trump? You know, we, we're not exactly sure, maybe 20%. Uh, a lot of other Republicans sort of go along because they've gotten a lot of what they've always wanted and they're kind of embarrassed by him. They wish he would tweet less. But there are a, there is a core of Trump supporters on the right who actually love everything he says. And the real danger for me, I think, is going to be what comes after Trump, because with every one of these outrageous statements about the fact that he claims he has the the authority in his office to do anything he wants, he can adjourn Congress if he wishes and appoint judges 
with his power of recess appointments while Congress is adjourned, uh, that he tweets out on Monday night, hey, I'm going to end immigration. It turns out, of course, when it comes again to what he's actually doing, it's a little less threatening. He's actually only doing it for 60 days. It's only some green cards. It's not all immigration. But he asserts in the tweet, I'm doing this great thing, which is producing, I fear, a, a significant segment of the American population that is ripe for tyranny, that is going to be perfectly willing to stand up, cheer, and applaud for a future president who actually is competent in the way that uh, Victor Orban is to actually do these things. And they will be there saying, right on, brother, thanks for actually following through on this dictatorial sentiment that has been stoked in the American people. That's what I really worry about, probably more than anything, that Trump in his ineptitude will actually be able to pull off. Yeah, I, I, I also have that worry. And I also believe that the ground was prepared in a way, or at least there was an erosion of standards that has begun before Trump, um, that uh, the, the worship of Obama, for example, um, was unhealthy in a democracy. Um, he was treated like the light worker, like the Messiah uh, at the beginning. And um there were a lot of people who who thought that uh, that he could break the rules and uh, and not abide by um, democratic norms. He he unilaterally changed the Affordable Care Act a number of different times, and some of us got up on our hind legs and said, uh, "Sorry, that's just not the way the system is designed to work, and it's not legitimate, and you cannot, you know." Ipsy Dixit, as they say in the law, because I say so, you cannot change immigration law, which he also did. Um, and, you know, people who went along with it when Obama did it were um, contributing to the erosion of, of standards about constitutionality and the rule of law. Well, Mona, I think that's right, but uh, it isn't as if there are not other actors that have been complicit. Congress has been willingly ceding authority to the executive branch for decades. And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, we sometimes miss that. And I'm very frightened looking at what's happening even in Congress now. You've got an executive, you've got the President of the United States getting on television every single night you don't have much leadership being shown in the Congress. And while I perfectly understand the desire, you know, not to infect the entire Congress of the United States with uh, coronavirus, um, the idea that they're not in session, that uh, we're not seeing the leaders, we're not seeing uh, a way around. I mean, you know, the parliament in uh, the UK has been able to figure out how to do some Zoom parliamenting. Um, you know, one wonders why there are not uh, attempts to change the rules so that we could have a more active Congress, because I think this is giving everybody the impression that the executive branch is the only branch of government that matters. Hmm. Although it is notable that uh, Congress's approval rating has jumped up <laughs> recently. Um, because they're not there, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. No, because they're doing things. They did write big checks. so That's true. Um, so there is that. 
Um, all right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the the circus and the mayhem that unfortunately does tend to characterize our national life. So this week we had um, we had protesters showing up in various uh, state capitals protesting the shutdown. And um, we talked a little bit about this last week, but uh, there were more of them. But but the president uh, this week chose to, by tweet, um, egg them on and support them. Liberate Minnesota, liberate Virginia. Oh, and then he added about Virginia, your Second Amendment rights are under siege or words to that effect. Um, and, uh, and yet when um, the governor of Georgia seemingly in obedience to Trump's wishes to open up the country quickly uh, announced that he was opening up a lot of things. Uh, the president flipped and said, no, I disagree with that. Bill, where are we on all this? Oh God. What is there? What is there left to say? Um, <laughs> I think you're, I think your line about the attention span of a three-year-old is now ingrained in my brain. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think the I think the broader picture is that the president is trying to position himself so that he will get credit uh, for all of the good things that may happen while avoiding blame for any of the bad things. Uh, and this this disgraceful effort to eliminate federal responsibility in the area of testing is, I guess, the lead example of that because he understands that testing is going to be our Achilles heel for quite some time to come. And he doesn't want to be held responsible for an in, inept, feckless federal response, which is what it has been up to now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, but he is smart enough to understand that reopening Georgia under these circumstances is likely to create a rebound wave of infections. And he doesn't want it to be said that this is on his watch because he urged governors all over the country to reopen and they did so. And now it's turning, it's, it's backfiring. Uh, so, you know, so I, I see this as part of a political positioning exercise. He wants he wants authority without responsibility. That's his dream. Uh, mm -hmm. And he's maneuvering to get it. Um, Governor Hogan of uh, Maryland, uh, whose wife is Korean American, negotiated a separate deal, as he was encouraged to do by Trump, um, uh, negotiated a separate deal for 500,000 tests that uh, he had uh, he purchased from the South Koreans, had them shipped to, to Maryland, um, and even up until the last minute, here's the detail that's just mind blowing. Even up until the last minute when those planes landed at BWI airport, Hogan was terrified that the federal government, that FEMA or one of the federal agencies was going to steal his supply of tests uh, that, that, that he had negotiated. And that is, and it has happened in other instances. So this is a remarkable level of dysfunction that we are now dealing with, uh, that rather than have a centrally coordinated and cooperative arrangement to try to get tests for the entire country, we have states competing against one another and against the federal government itself. And you have the president um, 
changing his message every day. So at first it was, yes, it's the governor's responsibility to handle testing. And then there were some snide remarks about Maryland and, and comments that he could have just called Mike Pence which is preposterous. He had called Mike Pence many times. He'd spoken with Mike Pence almost daily. And uh, if he had been able to get what he needed from Mike Pence, he would have, but he couldn't. Um, well, you, this is... Yeah. Uh, go ahead, uh, Linda. Well, I was just going to say, you know, one of the advantages of, of saying so many things and often mutually contradictory things is that you're always going to be right. Yeah. Uh, and that's exactly, you know, I mean, if you only listen to half of what he's saying and you, and you pick out the half that you want to listen to, uh, he's going to be proved right. Uh, but this this whole idea that that the federal government has no responsibility really in this testing regimen uh, is total nonsense. It was very interesting. They came out this week with a bunch of uh, maps showing testing sites uh, available in states to try to contradict governors who said there weren't enough tests and they couldn't get tests done. Uh, yesterday at the press uh, conference, uh, one of the reporters said, could you perhaps give us more details detailed information, uh, not just showing us little dots on a map so that we might follow up with these particular labs and find out, you know, whether or not they do have all of the supplies that are necessary, etc. Um, mm -hmm. And suddenly, um, Dr. Burks, who's been pretty good throughout most of this, didn't want to give that information. Well, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, it call me a skeptic, but uh, that was my first question when I saw those maps. Why aren't you providing enough information so that we can independently verify that those maps that you're putting up are not just propaganda? Uh, and I think, you know, when even some of the medical officials now are being questioned, when Trump gets up there as he did yesterday and tried to get uh, the head of the CDC, Dr. Redfield, to walk back an interview he did with the Washington Post, um, mm -hmm. and Dr. Redfield, to his credit, said, no, I was quoted correctly in the Washington Post. But, you know, you, you've got this spectacle going on where we now not only can we not believe the president, President, but now we have to question whether or not doctors that are getting up are under such political pressure that if they say the wrong thing, they won't appear uh, and may lose their jobs, as one of them did this week, uh, Dr. Rick Bright, uh, who was head of the vaccine uh, effort in the federal government. This is really scary. There, there is a lot of dysfunction uh, happening uh, at the moment, and there is a lot to be afraid of. Um, as this virus continues, one of the one of the issues that that came up and that was considered so sensitive at yesterday's press briefing was the question about whether the next wave or another wave we don't even know if this one will have abated by then. But that you know the uh, what Redfield was saying was that in the fall we could face the prospect and thinks it's likely that we will face the prospect of a flu season and the coronavirus making another come back. Um, and so that could, that could be a very, very bad combination. Um, there's, um, there's a lot to worry about. Um, but on the other hand, um, I would have to say that uh, one of the things that does give me a little bit of encouragement is the tremendous response of the private sector, 
which is getting into gear and the governors who are showing themselves to be creative and entrepreneurial. Um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, who was it? Adam Smith, who said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation, mm-hmm. but, but that doesn't mean that it's a ruined nation. Um, we, uh, we have a lot of ruin in our country, but we also have a great many strengths. Does anybody else want to weigh in on? Um, yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, uh, and that is that I, Mona, I agree with everything you said. And I think the American, the American people have been much more compliant and much more patient than a lot of skeptics thought they would be in this era of mistrust, mistrust of government. But as a very well-known epidemiologist, uh, Michael Osterholm uh, said today, uh, was quoted as saying, we are in a marathon and public leaders are talking about it as though it's a sprint mm-hmm. and it's not. Uh, we are in, in the best of all possible worlds we're going to be living with this disease as a chronic condition for quite some time to come. And the question is how that chronic condition can be cabined within limits that allow meaningful reopening of our economy and society. Uh, And it is not clear to me that we've really begun to think through that question because very few public officials have dared to contradict the hope that by Labor Day we'll be back to normal. Uh, I can't find a single serious epidemiologist who thinks that that is likely at all. Uh, The position that Dr. Redfield articulated and came under pressure uh, for articulating is not a minority position among people who know what they're talking about. It's the consensus. So, Are the American people being prepared appropriately for what the next year is likely to be like? Uh, Or are they expecting a level of safety and security that we simply cannot attain on a mass scale? You know, it might be possible to just speak to the American people as grownups and tell them there are always trade-offs. No matter what you do, there's no perfect solution. And we're going to have to grope our way toward dealing with this unprecedented uh, crisis uh, as best we can. All right. It it is a different, I just wanted to add, it is a, a difficult challenge because we're dealing with a situation with so much uncertainty at the same time that we have to rely as much as ever on the guidance of experts who are themselves also unsure. I mean, one reason why I think people allowed themselves, even within the scheme of how kind of dark things sometimes have been getting over the last four to six weeks. A, a little bit of optimism is that Dr. Fauci was pointing early on to the uh, IHME um, a model, which predicted a peak around April 15th, and then by like late May, almost no deaths uh, from uh, COVID. And the fact is that that model has not been holding up well. We're very much in a plateau. We're more than a week past that initial predicted peak, and we appear to be kind of plateaued at a peak right now. We don't know how quickly we're going to go down the other side. The U.S. is so large. There are hot spots cropping up in different places that are sort of mitigating 
places where it's declining, like in New York now. So, you know, that creates this constant threat that people are going to, uh, you know, say, oh, look, the light at the end of the tunnel, and then it'll prove not to be true, which then discredits those who said it in the first place. So it's a very delicate balancing act. So um, I I share, I agree with everything Bill said, but I worry that, uh, you know, the dynamic is one that is, is very delicate. You know, I also think, Mona, that it is quite possible that um, our world will have changed permanently. I don't know why there's any reason to believe that we are ultimately going to find a vaccine for this or that we're going to find treatments that are uh, spectacularly more successful than what we've seen so far. Um, You know, this is a disease that apparently is uh, more virulent, more cruel, uh, attacks more body systems than we originally thought. We now know that it attacks the brain, the kidneys, the digestive system, in addition to the respiratory system. We know that it's affecting blood clotting factors. Um, And until you have, you know, what's called herd immunity, which we're nowhere near going to be able to get. And frankly, you know, the the fact that we're all being separate from each other means that we're never going to really reach that. Um, this idea that somehow we're going to come up with a magic vaccine, um, there are a lot of viruses that we don't have uh, vaccines for, uh, including notably AIDS and dengue fever. And, and there are others as well. I don't think we have one for Ebola. Um for Marburg syndrome, and there are, there, there are lots of diseases we don't have vaccines for. So we may have a very changed world, and I know that, you know, it's a frightening thing to think about, but we better begin thinking about how we operate in such a changed world. I listened to a virologist uh, say that they've been searching for a vaccine for coronavirus for decades and have never been able to come up with one. That's why we don't have one for the common cold which would be highly remunerative for any company that was able to get one, right? Um, but uh, but they haven't because these viruses are tricky. Now, so that's on the negative side. On the positive side, we've never before had every great mind in medicine and uh, on the whole planet bending toward one end, which is finding a vaccine or a treatment. I, I'm personally, you know, hoping that uh, or, or betting that we're more likely to get treatments than vaccines, but who knows? I'm no expert on this. I'm just that's my speculation. Um, but what I what I think is is holding us back, in addition to the medical stuff, I think the the tendency to to view everything in a binary fashion. You're either pro Trump or anti Trump. You're either an opener, open up the economy, or you're a stay closed person it really impedes getting to reasonable solutions. I mean, the fact is everybody knows that you cannot keep everything shut down forever without, you know, eventually eroding your food and water supply and everything else that you need for life to continue. So you can't keep everything shut down forever. That's an obvious fact. Um, And, uh, but it's also obvious that you can't open up everything right away either. So, you know, you would think that uh, we could, sort of begin to come and reason together, right, about the best way to go forward safe as safely as possible, recognizing that that nothing is perfect and that uh, we have a lot more risk in our lives now than we had three months ago. And that's something that's very hard to accept, but is reality. All right, let us um, move on to our final segment. Uh, Linda, what's your, 
What's the thing you wanted to draw attention to? Well, I uh, had uh, a, a column in the um, New York Times that I wanted to point to, uh, and I think it's in today's time, or at least it's on the online version of today's time. And it says, sadness and disbelief from a world missing American leadership. Uh, you know, some of us have been talking about American exceptionalism all of our lives, and it's not just Americans who've believed in American exceptionalism. It is also people around the world have looked to the United States uh, as a model. And I think they are somewhat shaken seeing what's happening in the United States now with not just our leadership, but the fact that um, we are the leader now in a very unfortunate way. And that's being the leader in the number of deaths and in the number of cases in coronavirus. So I think this is going to have a profound effect on the United States role in the world, I fear, for decades to come. So I would commend that article. Who wrote it? Uh, it is, has written by Katrin uh, Benholt. Okay, thanks. Uh, Bill. Uh, I detect a convergence across party lines. Uh, on the need to re-examine uh, our dependence on global supply chains for critical supplies in the healthcare area, but perhaps others, others as well. And so uh, I'm, I'm hearing more and more Democrats echoing what was previously a sort of a Peter Navarro line about uh, the need to draw back in. And uh, so I, th I think in that respect, uh, the nationalist turn that Trump's election signaled is going to be accelerated by this process. And uh, I'm, I would go so far as to say that globalization may have hit a cyclical peak, uh, say, eight years ago. And with Xi Jinping's ascent to power, uh, with Trump's election, and now with the uh, coronavirus, the world may be very different in its economic architecture over the next generation. Well, this can be a topic uh, for future podcasts because um, one of the great risks in the face of an emergency is that governments will make very bad decisions, beggar thy neighbor decisions, such as we saw after the stock market crash in 1929, which led to uh, the Smoot-Hawley tariff and other kinds of uh, protectionist behavior all around the world, which deepened the Great Recession, the Great uh, Depression. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right that those tendencies are out there, but boy, this is a big, big topic. Damon. Um, I like that one, by the way. So yes, let's come back to that on another podcast. Um, I, I, mine is a fairly straightforward one. Uh, Linda mentioned uh, the complications of the coronavirus and how it seems to be much more uh, deadly and complicated than we uh, may have originally thought when it appeared to be originally just a respiratory illness. Uh, the Washington Post had a really great and very uh, informative article on Wednesday titled, A Mysterious Blood Clotting Complication is Killing Coronavirus Patients. It's a very good 
kind of a deep dive into what doctors uh, around the country and even around the world are discovering uh, in their patients about uh, the problem of kind of microclots that are showing up in people's lungs that can lead to strokes and other things. It's, as you would imagine, pretty, uh, pretty dark reading given where we are right now, but it's very informative and uh, properly cautious in its conclusions. So a kind of a model of, of, of good um, uh, explainer journalism. So I recommend it. I uh, I read it. I recommend it too. Um, it mentions that uh, that this is not the only virus that is known to have effects on the clotting of blood. The Ebola virus does too, but it goes in the other direction. It makes the blood less likely to clot and therefore people to bleed out. This seems to have the opposite effect. This it causes blood clots to form, which can then form embolisms that go to your heart and give you a heart attack or to your brain, give you a stroke. Delightful. Um, all right. Um, my, my comment is about hydroxychloroquine. Um, when this drug was first mentioned by the president, I withheld judgment. I thought it was irresponsible of him to be touting it as a miracle cure and a game changer. That was his exact phrase. But I thought, let's see, you know, certainly it should be tried and who knows. But in the intervening weeks, um, Fox News went on a went on a campaign to try to convince people that this was the greatest, uh, you know, solution and that it was really, truly, I mean, they became snake oil salesmen. Uh, Laura Ingram in particular, who became our, one of our medical experts in America. She doesn't have a medical degree. She, she, but she came to the White House with a couple of handpicked people to lobby the president to uh, advocate for this drug. There has now been an observational study in the Veterans Administration, which means it's not a double blind study, but it is. it does look at a group of over 300 uh, patients, who some of whom were given this drug and some of whom weren't. And it turned out that more died um, who received the drug than not. Um, and, uh, and so Fox has gone very quiet about hydroxychloroquine now, um, but they just—they they really, if they have any integrity at all, they need to apologize to their millions of viewers for this disgraceful gaslighting that they engaged in regarding this drug that they had no business promoting on the basis of nothing. All right, ladies and gents, thank you all. Um, and uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and look forward to next time.